On June 26th, in the year 2000, President Bill Clinton stood at the East Room of the White House and proudly proclaimed that scientists from the Human Genome Project had successfully sequenced the human genome for the very first time. This survey of the human genome, he said, was the most important, the most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. The hope was that the human genome would be key to identifying disease biomarkers and creating new treatments. The cost of this single human genome, however, was staggering, some $3 billion. And the complexity contained within the genome was immense. And yet, we now live in an era where sequencing is commonplace, commoditized even. What happened in the intervening two decades to make this possible? How is sequencing being used in the life sciences today? And with talk of genomic sequencing getting cheaper and cheaper, what might the impact of a $100 genome be? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug into Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, is the $100 genome coming to a lab near you? Hi, I'm Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. We hope you enjoyed our first season of Invent, all about health tech. But now I'm going to be leading you into the fascinating realm of life sciences. Just another thing we're really passionate about here. Our life sciences department is researching and developing products in everything from drug discovery to diagnostics. And over the course of this season, we're going to be answering some of the biggest questions in the field, from AI in drug discovery to synthetic biology and even stem cells as a cure for cancer. In this, our inaugural episode, we're exploring how we analyze the very building blocks of life on Earth, the field of genomics. The human genome, some three billion bases in length, is often referred to as the instruction book for life. It was thought that knowing the entire sequence would allow doctors to pinpoint causes of disease as easily as looking up someone's number in a phone book. We quickly realised that things weren't quite as simple. It's true that some so-called monogenic disorders can be traced to a single mutation at a single point in the genome. But, in many cases, there is a complex interplay between many genes and layers of gene regulation that lie on top of the genome. There's still an enormous amount about the behaviour of human cells that cannot be explained by genes alone. So, in addition to the genomic code, scientists began to characterise other types of information contained within the cell. The epigenome, the transcriptome, the proteome, and the tool they often turn to in order to generate the data is sequencing. With private companies leading the way, introducing next-generation sequencing, or NGS, prices began to fall dramatically. By 2007, the cost of sequencing the human genome had fallen to a million dollars. In 2014, the company Illumina could do it for a mere $1,000. So far from being an end unto itself, the Human Genome Project helped usher in an era of innovation in sequencing technology. With some heralding the era of a $100 genome, I wanted to find out what it all actually means for people working in the sector. What can we actually do 
now that genome sequencing is so much more viable at scale? Are we finally at the point where sequencing can enable detection and inform treatment for diseases like cancer? And what could be done if the price dropped even further? I had so many questions about this, so I knew I needed to get in touch with someone who's been at the forefront of communicating those new developments of genomics to the world. That person is James Hadfield, the Senior Director of Oncology Translational Medicine at AstraZeneca and author of the wildly successful core genomics blog on Encyclopedia. A life sciences researcher and technology developer with over 20 years experience in genomics, James has been thrilling and entertaining people across the globe with his writing on genomics by night and leading teams in development of epigenomics technologies by day. I called him up to find out about his involvement in the genomic space, why he's so passionate about it, and the key developments he's seen since the Human Genome Project announced its achievement over 20 years ago. Great to have you on, James. Nice to speak to you. And I know you've got uh, the encyclopedia blog. Why was it necessary to have an encyclopedia blog? Sure. Uh, so it, it started really because I kept being asked the same questions. The, the most influential thing I've ever written is a blog post. <laughs> how do spry beads work? Um, and I wrote it because people kept coming to ask me, how do they work? And uh, first of all, I didn't know, so I had to educate myself. But I kept telling people the same thing time and time again. So the blog really grew out of my interest. I enjoyed the writing. And it, it became it became very popular, uh, worryingly popular, uh, <laughs> a few years back. How much public engagement was there in, in the blog? I'm just trying to think about how sequencing is infiltrating the public consciousness. I think there is still this general lack of knowledge about um, genome technologies. I, I think that the general understanding is that DNA is is you know impactful in our lives in a way that perhaps people don't generally understand, but they have this feeling that it's important. Yeah. So, what, why is sequencing so important for the general public to understand, for the general public to be aware of? You know, how is it impacting on people's lives? Uh, well, I think uh, first and foremost, it's about medicine, and yeah, that that's as much. Uh, in the UK anyway, it's cancer and rare disease. I'm going to focus on cancer genomics in, in most of the answers that I give. They'll be, they'll be slanted by that. That's mm -hmm. the field I've worked in nearly 15 years at Cancer Research UK, um, four years now at AstraZeneca in, in oncology pharma. But I think recent examples of why the public should care and probably are a little bit more aware now, um, it, you know, particularly outside of the non-oncology kind of medicine, I'd say exemplified by two very exciting and, and very recent results. Firstly, uh, the Guinness World Record for rapid genome sequencing by Ewan Ashley's group at Stanford. They sequenced the genome in, I think, as little as five hours. That's quite astonishing, given where we were even just a few years back. Yep, um, yep. And secondly, the recent positive results of a, a clinical trial from Bill Newman, in, uh, or Bill's certainly involved in it, in Manchester, um, where they used a rapid diagnostics platform. It's not sequencing, but the sequencing enabled us to, to understand the genome to develop the tests. They developed rapid diagnostics to enable analysis of a mitochondrial DNA variant that leads to deafness in children being given antibiotics in, in the neonative intensive care. And the challenge there is that a child with sepsis needs antibiotics, I think the clinical guidelines are within an hour. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you don't know the genotype of that child, one in 500 children 
will go deaf after having that, those antibiotics. And that's, that's completely solvable by putting a test in place. So, so we're getting a, a thirst for information, isn't it? And, and uh, genomics allows us to kind of open that book. I, th- I was just trying to think back to the, the Human Genome Project, and that's probably when it first was entering the, the public consciousness. Do you think that has had the impact that people thought it was going to have at the time? Or are we still kind of, is it still unfolding? Uh, I'd say very much it's still unfolding. Yeah, the Human Genome Project, at a very simple level, was one genome. It was one genome, and it took 10 years and cost $3 billion, something like that. Um, And I, I don't think that Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, when they announced the completion of the um, human genome, really understood what they were talking about. And, you know, they they had this great headline. And again, it was great news. It got people interested. But I think there has been a general, well, I thought you'd done that 20 years ago. And it it quite clearly wasn't enough. But I, I think the Human Genome Project, it kicked off this rapid development of new technologies And it was those technologies that got us where we are today. And that's what's transformed medicine. The Human Genome Project described itself as an inward voyage of discovery. And that's what it was. An international collaborative research programme, which became a catalyst for the transformation of the genomics industry through major funding, as much as getting it into the popular mindset. It's the thing which heralded an era when the idea of a $100 genome became a genuine possibility with all the incredible innovation that could bring, as we'll soon find out. But, as James mentioned, wasn't the Human Genome Project completed 20 years ago? Why are we still talking about its impact today? I wanted to go further into the impact of the Human Genome Project over the last couple of decades, and alongside that, to find out how it changed the way in which we actually go about sequencing in the lab. So I met with another member of our life sciences team at TTP and went over to see Lauren Lang. Lauren leads the omics team at TTP, a team addressing current needs in DNA and RNA sequencing and also looking to develop tools for future multi, proteo and other omic workflows. Prior to joining TTP, Lauren worked on developing new sequencing technologies, novel chemistries, approaches to automating sample preparation, and research applying sequencing in single cell and epigenetic applications. We started off with a deeper discussion of the Human Genome Project and talked a little bit about what falling prices in genomics could mean for the sector. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, Lauren. Really good to see you. Now, I read something really interesting the other day, which was that the Human Genome Project finally completed the human genome in 2021. Now, I, I thought it would actually done about 20 years ago. So what, what was going on there? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. So they did actually manage to resolve the majority of the human genome um, during the Human Genome Project. But there was about, I think it was about 15% that was unresolved. But essentially, when you're sequencing a genome for the first time, you you do what's called a de novo genome assembly. So you have to try and work out where all the bits of DNA came from in the genome um, without uh, a reference or without a script. And so while a large useful part of the human genome was sequenced, what hadn't happened until 
2021 was that wasn't fully resolved into its um, final constructs. So it's things like pack biosequencing that have enabled that to happen. So what you're saying de novo, so we didn't actually know what the sequence read like until we'd, we'd completed it for the first time. Well, yes and no. So we had some idea from prior techniques to to Sanger, Sanger sequencing, which was what was used for um, the Human Genome Project that enabled us to know how many chromosomes and things like that. And we knew roughly where some genes sat. I mean, the field of genomics has existed for an awful long time, but it was the it was the being able to characterise it fully, um, which hadn't happened prior to kicking off the Human Genome Project. And so what extra information were we getting from being able to do the kind of full characterization rather than just these smaller pieces of information? So knowing the whole human genome, or at least that of the individual that was sequenced during the Human Genome Project, what that means is we have a reference of what the human genome roughly looks like. And from there, we can compare other genomes in order to understand things like disease states where where there may be a single change in a certain base pair along the genome um, that may well be very relevant to diseases like cancer or sickle cell, just to name a few. So one of the big, most powerful things it did was give us that reference so that we can use genomics as a study tool to understand certain disease states. It sounds like uh, when I go to 23andMe and I get my report on, on all my genetic variants, that's based on underlying data from the human genome then? Yes, exactly. From today's human genome reference, which has been updated many times, as we understand more about the, the structure and how um, the genome is resolved to its chromosomes. What, what's, what's the next step then from, from having that full um, human genome sequence? So is it doing more sequences? Is it doing more research into other aspects of the human genome what what's what's kind of going on at the moment so in terms of what's next it's worth noting that alongside the human genome um, the labs that were involved also sequenced other important genomes like the yeast um, drosophila other model organisms that have been really um, important for understanding things like evolution many of the different bacteria that have been sequenced but in terms of the human genome in order to make that tool really, really useful in research um, and in diagnostics, really what we need is the cost to come down. The Human Genome Project costs an awful lot of money. And thanks to lots of innovation in massively parallel sequencing and next generation sequencing in particular, the cost of the genome has come down. But it's sort of sat steady for about the last six years. And much of the community is awaiting for some kind of change to invoke a reduction in cost and what would what would that enable if we, if we could do it for cheaper so you know closer to a hundred dollars for a routine uh, genome, genome sequence so if we could sequence the human genome for a hundred dollars or less what that would mean is that we can we can sequence more genomes so it's genome sequencing with the right regulatory framework could become part of um, more routine diagnostics a good example of that is minimal residual disease testing. So that's a, a good UK use case, which has typically been done by PCR, but now more and more we're thinking about doing by NGS and there are okay. 
laboratory developed tests that are using NGS. Um, and what that is, is when somebody has been treated for cancer, the cancer treatment um, would hopefully reduce or remove all of the cancer cells in that person. But you may end up with a very, very small proportion of cells that just don't respond to the initial treatment and will regrow to become a relapse. And uh, where sequencing can help with that is it's much more sensitive than typical imaging uh, techniques. So we could monitor a patient during and after treatment to detect those rare cells much, much quicker before they relapse. We'll come back to minimal residual disease testing a little later. But we'll find, as ever, that expense is one of the key things which has prevented sequencing of human genomes becoming a routine healthcare tool. The Human Genome Project itself costs some $3 billion, and even the move to sequencing one genome for $1,000 or less has become a major step. But as Lauren says, the things that we'd be able to achieve with NGS at a cheaper rate are truly incredible. And one company who have been leading the way in this technology is Illumina. Based in San Diego, the de facto worldwide hub of genomics, Illumina have been pioneers in this space, bringing down the cost of genome sequencing from $1 million in 2007 to $1,000 by 2014. Their growth has gone in tandem with innovations in genomics. So at this point, I knew I needed to find out some more about what they've done and how they've developed the sequencing field over the years. So I got in touch with Jeff Smith, someone who was at the heart of Illumina's work over the years. Jeff is a next-gen sequencing pioneer who literally built and led the team that invented and developed the entire NGS workflow at Illumina. From sample prep to the core sequencing technology to new instrument systems. As their global head of technology development, he was responsible for that extraordinary drop in price for genome sequencing. Now an independent board member of various exciting startups, I invited Jeff to our campus here at TTP to find out some more about his work and to ask about the most impactful changes he has seen over the past few years. Thanks for thanks for coming in today, Jeff. Really good to see you. Welcome. Illumina obviously launched their first sequencing range um, over, over a decade ago. Why has there been more development since then? What was kind of unfinished business, if, if you like? The usual stuff, time, cost and quality, right? So... Can you sequence quicker? Can you do more? Uh, and can you bring costs down? And I think the you know the story of sequencing, not just for next gen sequencing, but before that, has been one of cost reduction. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see the graphs. You know, the cost reductions have been quite staggering with next gen sequencing. That has opened up markets because you know the the hypothesis is that. sequencing is an elastic market so as you bring down costs so the market expands and so that has proven Mm -hmm. to be and it's taken a company like Illumina to have the conviction of that hypothesis to say well let's let's actually cannibalize our own instruments in order to then um, come up with things that are faster and cheaper and in doing that we will have a bigger market and not every company would feel compelled to do that that's right yeah yeah so i think it's that that and of course quality we we launched back in 2000 and whatever it was six seven with a four percent error rate with 25 base reads 
you know, that, of course, that would be laughable now mm. in terms of being able to do things like, um, you know, cancer diagnostics. So there's been a huge amount of work put into reducing the um, reducing the errors and uh, and and having a much more stable platform and something that's actually just basically ubiquitous and easy to use. Just kind of taking it a step further, would would a further reduction in cost help, or is it? how you prepare the samples or is it accuracy what what's kind of going to be the the most impactful change in that space being able to reliably find signatures that are clinically validated uh, whatever that signature is whether it's a snip whether it's um, you know the position of those that that particular piece of dna uh, with respect to the to the ends of the DNA, there's all sorts of things. Where, what, you know, to what extent does epigenetics play a role, and how you combine all of those pieces of information to give you a a, a validatable a signature is still still open season. And yeah. I think, and it's great because I think you know the the opportunity is there, and everyone can see it, and the money is there to do it because the market is enormous. But doing it reliably and 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 over you know, uh, you know, very large clinical cohorts is, you know, quite a tour de force. And of course, you can only do that only so many times with cohorts of 200,000 women, for example. That's a, that's a large study. That's a really big study, yeah. And it's really expensive. And so you can't keep, you know, you need to, you need to have confidence that your particular uh, biomarkers are going to be validated in a cohort like that. As Jeff mentioned, the test GRAIL have developed could allow doctors to pinpoint, just from the sequencing data, what type of cancer a cancer patient has, without need for a tissue biopsy. With cheaper sequencing has come a wealth of possibilities for this sector, and the things it's allowing scientists to do with the technologies is really fascinating. I wanted to find out what other new applications in cancer cheaper sequencing is enabling, So I went back to James to hear more about MRD testing. So so what are some of the most exciting questions that are being asked uh, now that that couldn't have been asked without sequencing being available? Uh, So for me today, I mean, really, the understanding of um, the cancer genome is Mm -hmm. is perhaps, I think, the most exciting and has been hugely impactful. Uh, we've, We've seen over the last couple of decades the... Um, development of personalized therapy, um, of targeted therapy, sorry, uh, where, you know, a patient with a specific mutation is given a drug that's developed to target that mutation very exquisitely. But these these medicines that are designed to a specific mutation in, in, say, in lung cancer, and if a patient has that mutation, the label on the drug says, give the patient the medicine. And they almost certainly will respond to that very well. And really some stunning... Um, you know, advances in, in targeted therapies. And we've moved more recently, perhaps over the last um, sort of 10 to 15 years, into an era of personalized medicine, where now we're looking at the genome of that cancer patient, or at least a few of the um, mutations that are there, to understand not just which drug should we give them, but can we say anything about prognosis for that patient that improves understanding. And I think a really exciting space and um, you know, we're really glad to be working in that very deeply right now is in minimal residual disease. 
And that's a term that many people have probably heard of in uh, hematological malignancies, in the leukemias, for instance. Um, but minimal residual disease, or MRD, in solid tumours is a really big deal. And I think there's, there's two things we're aiming for with the technology. And, and just very briefly, what we're aiming to do there is um, look in the patient's blood after they've had surgery, uh, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, whatever the curative intent therapy is. So we're treating a patient and saying we're hoping to cure your cancer. Yeah, that, so yeah, so that's the that's the kind of that's the intervention, and you that's it. You're try- yeah, yeah. And and so then about four weeks afterwards, we want to take a blood sample and say, is there any residual tumor DNA present? And if there is probably means we need to escalate the therapy for that patient. So more quickly get them onto a more aggressive therapy um, and try to improve their outcomes. Because and they and, are and the without, without that knowledge, yeah, without that knowledge, you're, you're, you're kind of in the dark. You are, but that's, that's where we are with standard of care now. But what we can do with this MRD monitoring is see that the cancer is still there in the blood and start more aggressive therapy or monitor the patient over time and see much earlier that the cancer's coming back. So again, we can kick off the therapy. Uh, and that's really the main hope today is the escalation um, for those patients who's, who've, who've got minimal residual disease and need better therapy. And perhaps, and, and this is you know, where you know, I'm not a clinician, so I, I don't understand all the intricacies and, and difficulties and challenges there might be. But I, I think the hope is that what we'll really get to is a point where we can de-escalate therapy for those patients that are truly MRD negative. And that means that if a patient's had surgery for their breast cancer, a bit of chemotherapy afterwards, we do a test and we see there's no DNA present, that we can say to that patient, you're cured. Um, but but, but it means, it means um, I think actually um, that term de-escalation is quite quite good. You know, you're, <laughs> they're pretty brutal, the, the ways that we, that, that we attack cancer. Yeah. And so being able to reduce the intensity of that given the all clear from the MRD, that'd be a great tool to use, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And it's a, it's a massive win-win for patients and healthcare services. If we can reduce patients from needing additional therapy, they don't have to have the side effects. And we can save the NHS, you know, the, the time in hospital, the, the costs of the drugs, and, and these drugs are, are expensive. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that minimal residual disease for me is, is really exciting. I believe it's going to be truly impactful. That win-win for patients could be felt across the NHS, if not the world. There is potentially a life-changing opportunity here to speed up treatment times and mitigate against using the most aggressive forms of cancer treatments. Will we see sequencing services like this being offered more widely across the NHS? With new technologies like NGS and spatial transcriptomics becoming viable, what could the future hold? I asked Lauren, about which of these technologies she is most excited about. Again, it's that price versus benefit that kept on coming up. So other than MRD, what other applications are people using NGS for at the moment? What, what, what's the kind of the state of the industry? What are we, what are we trying to do here? So classic uh, NGS or sequencing by synthesis that has been around for, for now tens of years um, and has steadily come down in price the reduction in cost in that is enabling us to do other types of sequencing application beyond classical dna or rna sequencing 
So with good quality data, the large amounts of data we can generate at the costs we can generate them today um, means that we can do single cell sequencing. So we don't just need to look at a whole a chunk of tissue. We can look at we can break that down and look at the individual cells that make up that tissue. We can also do spatial sequencing. So we can take a slice through a, a tissue and understand how the DNA expression varies not just from one individual cell to another, but also based on their and where they are sitting within the tissue itself. Is this is this RNA seq uh, or, or or is it DNA as well? The primary use case at the moment is RNA seq, but there are applications where you could use it for DNA sequencing. So, for example, if you wanted to look at how DNA methylation profiles differ within a brain tissue or within a tumour tissue, then uh, DNA would be relevant. Can, can you say a, a little bit about how the gene expression or the epigenetics might change over a tissue sample or, or even a biopsy? How useful is it to be able to know what the differences are from cell to cell? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. So focusing first on transcription, the expression of different RNA molecules uh, will differ based on many things. Obviously, the big one is the cell type. That will determine it, its RNA signature, we call it. But also, if you think about a tissue like a tumour, where you have many tumour cells growing close to one another, they will indeed have different RNA signatures, depend on whether the cell is at the heart of the tumour, where often it's very hypoxic, or at the outside of the tumour, where those cells are in contact with the host's immune system. And likewise, the cells of the of the patient um, that surround the tumour themselves um, will differ in transcription rate, depending on how closely they sit um, to the to the tumour itself. And what does that information allow us to do? Um, wh- why, why is it useful to know it? So one example of how spatial transcriptomics could be useful, for example, is when you're going to treat a solid tumour, you might want to understand which drugs would best interact with the outside of the tumour versus the, the inside of the tumour. And so it might be that you need different drugs at different times of the treatment. And we can only understand that by looking at the the way the transcription is regulated at different points of the tumour. What sort of cost point are we looking at for this to be viable as a, as a clinical technique? So when we talk about the human genome being cost effective in diagnostics, we use the term $100 genome. Now, for sequencing the human genome at $100, we are still a way off that yet. When we talk about spatial sequencing, we're talking about sequencing RNA, which means obviously we don't need quite as much sequencing coverage, much sequencing depth, because we're not sequencing every bit of genomic material. But we are talking about a vastly greater number of cells that we're sequencing from. And the resolution we need to differentiate individual cells means that we're a long, long way off $100. I think just the the glass slides for some of the tech, technologies that you can purchase at the moment, you're talking thousands of pounds a sample just to prepare the sample before you've even sequenced it. Oh, wow. Okay, so we're, we're, we're a little way off. What could help bring these costs down, do you think? The, the obvious way to bring the cost down is to bring down the cost of sequencing. But
also some cleverer ways perhaps in how we actually make the capture equipment for spatial biology. So the printing down of capture molecules and barcodes on a glass slide is is an ob- is an obvious one and we've seen from microarray technology that it can work very well. So it was absolutely the right way to go to start with. But to print an array that has a single cell resolution, so we're talking dots that are smaller than 10 microns and are that close to one another, it just costs too much. So we need to think of ways that we can index a tissue slice without um, the costs required of printing a very complex microarray. I think that would be a good point at which we could cost reduce the process. Reaching that holy grail of the $100 genome is all well and good when you think about it from a public health perspective. As we've seen with COVID, when the state is pushed into using its vast resources in an emergency, the things it can achieve are phenomenal. But private companies remain the big players in the genomic space. So what can be done to convince companies like Illumina to continue to drive down prices further? What's their role as we continue to see more widespread adoption of sequencing? Jeff has some fascinating insights into this. The push is, is basically from a kind of a public health perspective. So you'd say it's kind of a, a governmental, that somebody in government has to say, I think this is a good idea, let's roll it out. Not necessarily. I, again, this is why diagnostics is exciting because I think, you know, a diagnostic company invested in a certain type of cancer may well see that there was, um, you know, mileage in wanting to gather a lot of, prospective information and then work out who could you target various follow-on tests to based on that information um, and 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 you know tie-ins with drug companies that could then use that information to make sure that the right therapy was delivered to the right people at an early stage so they didn't have to get to a late stage of cancer uh, in order to be for that to be picked up so you could basically identify you know who are my higher risk um, uh, patients there and then direct more testing and more analysis to them, ruling out a large number of people where you say, actually, I just think you're normal for that and that's okay. Come yeah. back in 10 years for, a, for another test. And th- I, you, can, um, you could see that that could be the world that we're moving into. So we could spend all of that money in a, you know, a critical moment of you know, a global pandemic um, obviously, that's government spending yeah. that money. I think the question is, could w- w- at what price point would it make sense to sequence um, at a really large scale uh, for a private company for diagnostics? So you've got you've got the kind of diagnostics driver, got some monitoring. You've got um, basic science drivers. Does that? actually mean that the the NGIS market is is fragmenting somewhat there's, there's getting um lots of players are looking for kind of specific applications and trying to service the different parts of the market Is that what you see going on yeah so i think um i mean answering that question in a couple of ways i mean there are new sequencing entrants let's say to the to the NGS ball and and those are likely to launch this year mm-hmm. uh, this year or next and then there's BGI of course who've been uh, around and about for a while and so I think the I think it's going to be a 
it's going to be a busy and somewhat confusing time again, uh-huh. but I think that's good. And, you know, each of those new companies is going to want to, you know, differentiate themselves from the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that will be based on application, some will be based on cost, mm. um, some will be based on sort of alliances with other companies. Um, so it, it'll be, it'll be, you know, it'll be pretty interesting to see where that goes. And I think that hopefully will drive some new applications as well as people realise that, you know, let's say spatial transcriptomics is a much bigger market than they thought and therefore a dedicated system that served that really well was a, was would open up an interesting market rather than being the, the general Swiss army knife, which is what the Illumina sequencing has become. And, and so I suppose all this um, all this activity and new application, where, where does that leave Illumina in, in the future? I think in a very good spot. So, you know, Illumina has many years of development experience yeah. and many dollars of R&D spend uh, under its belt and is an extremely credible and, you know, robust supplier of those systems. But I think it's an open question as to what is... Uh, what's Illumina's response to that? This is a market which is building and evolving, with costs coming down and clinical sequencing becoming a more attractive commercial proposition and part of the public health conversation. So, where does genome sequencing go from here? Well, in terms of cancer, one thing which kept coming up was Grail, who have created a multi-cancer early detection test being trialled on the NHS. I wanted to know some more about their work and about how sequencing plays a vital role for them too. James has written about this extensively and told me all about it. And the other area in cancer that is really exciting and and I think people will have heard about is the early detection of cancer. Um, We've got the grail uh, NHS is is happening and... um, you know, for people who are listening in, the GRAIL assay is a, um, a, a DNA methylation assay. So not looking at, at the A, C's, G's and T's necessarily. It's looking at methylation, which happens to be the bit that regulates the genome. It's the bit that tells, you know, it, it, the methylation is different in each individual cell. We've all got the same genome in every cell, but methylation is different in those cells. It tells that cell which bits of the genome to turn on and off. And, and that's exquisitely different for different tissues. And it's exquisitely different for cancer to normal. And so Grail are using that signal in the blood to be able to say um, whether a patient may have cancer earlier. And it's particularly important where we don't have screening assays, things like ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer. Grail is a sequencing test. It's just what it delivers is a we you have cancer and we think it's lung cancer. If we can go beyond that um, to sequencing the DNA in the blood such that we know exactly what the cancer genome is, and then we can get on to determine what the best therapy is. And so I think Grail is in the early detection space. This is patients who don't have cancer, don't have any suspicion of cancer, maybe worried about it, but don't have anything, any symptoms. There's an opportunity we're not taking in learning that for every cancer patient. And, and many other companies are developing tests in the NGS space. Grail is just the, you know, kind of leading the charge. But genomic sequencing is not all just about cancer, or even just about DNA for that matter. 
There's even the prospect of sequencing proteins, lipids, and carbohydrates too. With further information from these building blocks of life, the opportunities for insight could be incredible. Here's Lauren again. What was the most surprising thing that you've seen NGS being used for? Does it all come down to diagnostics and disease monitoring? Or are there kind of a bit more way out there applications? I think it depends when you ask that question, which answer I would give. Because just two years ago, I'd have said, hey, Stuart, there's these people doing this spatial biology thing. How cool is that? Now, two years later, there's five or six companies um, innovating in that space. And it's it's not so surprising anymore because we've heard about it for two years. So I guess some of the the surprising things or the exciting things that I've seen lately is people starting to think about sequencing molecules beyond DNA. So sequencing proteins, we have been able to sequence proteins for a, a very long time, actually, but starting to look at the SBS type model, you know, the, the fast base by base resolution, potentially a plug and play instrument, that kind of thing. But, but also even to the point of people talking about sequencing sugar molecules, sequencing carbohydrates. I think what we're seeing in the DNA sequencing market is that now, within reason, anybody can do DNA sequencing. The instruments are relatively user-friendly. The reagents and the assays to prepare that can be put on an, on an automated platform. And the bioinformatics, if it's not too complicated, is automated. So will we get to that point with proteins and carbohydrates? Maybe. It would speed up biology, drug discovery. All sorts of applications would be highly benefited from that. Going beyond healthcare and thinking about the health of the entire planet, in the future, we could find cheap and easy-to-use sequencing techniques filtering through into applications such as agriculture and the environment. Here's Jeff with some final thoughts. I think one area that I think should be thought of, and again, just thinking broadly, is around climate change and how we're going to feed our growing population, uh -huh, uh -huh. where we are basically building on an awful lot of the land that we um, currently use as uh, agricultural land and how that works and what role can uh, genomics play in order for us to come up with either better crops or ways of improving yields or basically managing the, the, the agricultural space that we have and the microbiome and the, you know, the impact of the microbiome on not just the human gut, but actually what is involved in order for the soil to be as productive or more productive than it could be, I think is going to be absolutely critical. Um, ditto things like drought, right? We have climate, you know, large changes in weather. Uh, that's going to have a big impact on the underlying genomics of, 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 of the world around us in terms of our environment and how, how, how can we how can we understand that, maybe predict it, and then come up with ways to solve that? Manage it, yeah. So, yeah. you know, just so I'm, you know, my, and I don't know the answers to that, but I just feel like there's a, we focus very much on 
medical conditions. Medical, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there's a there's there's a there's actually a really big emergency out there, and um, and it's going to take some very bright minds to sort of figure out how we can use these tools that we've developed for human genomes. Yeah. How can we use that to actually create better solutions to climate change? We've come a long way since Bill Clinton declared the completion of the Human Genome Project in the year 2000. And while that remarkable achievement ignited a genomics boom, I've been really struck in this episode by the way in which genomic sequencing has the potential to feed into, well, almost anything. From diagnostics, to drug discovery, to improving treatments for cancer sufferers, and even going into climate change. The deeper we're able to analyse the building blocks of our own DNA, the more exciting the outcomes. With cheap and widely available genomic sequencing at $100 or even less, the possibilities in healthcare and beyond could be truly endless. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode of Event Life Sciences. And a big thanks goes to our first three guests, James, Lauren and Jeff, for all their amazing insight. We'll be back next week, where we'll be continuing our journey exploring the building blocks of life. When we look at synthetic biology and learn about the fascinating things that can happen as we begin to re-engineer living cells and the natural world around us. We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Bohr. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.